Amen. So uh, we're going to uh, finish up our conversation about grace. We'll be getting back to our study of 1 Corinthians. I'm looking forward to that. We uh, have much to, that God wants to say through that, and I'm very much looking forward to it. But as we finish this conversation on grace, uh, let's do so uh, by looking at a passage we'll eventually get to in Deuteronomy 34. Now, I want you to think about all of the expectations that come with Christmas. And all, all of us have expectations with Christmas, and they're all different. I don't know what your expectations are. Some of you have big expectations about uh, receiving gifts. Some of you have a lot of expectations about giving gifts, expectations about, uh, you know, who's going to be there or how it's going to go or whatever the case may be. I know that as I was driving to church this morning in the dark, uh, I was just noticing the beauty of the Christmas lights still burning. And I was just thinking to myself, you know, here it is, you know, the day after Christmas and all of these lights on every street that I turned down were lights. I thought about all the, the time, all the people that, uh, you know, were up on ladders, probably shouldn't have been, hanging lights off their gutters and, you know, probably be a good time of year to be in the gutter replacement business because there's probably a lot of gutters got ripped off and different things of that nature. But there were all those lights were put up with an expectation, an expectation of, a, of enhancing uh, their Christmas celebration, an expectation of, you know, when you see all those lights, it it's just fills your heart with uh, hope and, and joy, and it's just a blessing. I'm going to miss them. I'm going to miss those lights. And, uh, you know, when I was putting lights up at my house, I had an expectation of pleasing my wife. That was my expectation. I'm not saying I was, I'm not into Christmas and I'm not saying I wasn't, I'm not excited about Christmas, but in that moment, my expectation was pleasing my wife. And so I, I got it done. I, uh, she wanted me to fill this tree in our front yard with lights. So I did it. And when I finally got finished, it was this masterpiece, I'm telling you. And uh, I walked inside, took a shower. I mean, I was, uh, it was a mess. I, I took a shower, got dressed, came out. You know, I'm like, hey, watch this. I go in there and I say, honey, come, come see this. Let it get dark. We go out there. I open the door. What happened? Half the tree was out. So I get out there. I get on a ladder. I'm climbing around. I'm trying to, you know, now it's dark. And so, you know, I'm up in this tree trying to figure out where's the short. And, uh, you know, it's warm. It's a couple weeks ago. And I'm getting sweaty. And my arms are all sweaty. And I got my arm on the limb. And I'm going. I found the short. I mean, I got lit up like the Christmas lights. And so here there's, they've been up for an hour and there's bare wire. Rodents. Tree rodents. 
chewed on my wires. Well, this cannot stand. Somebody is going to pay. I am higher on the food chain than whatever it is that is chewing on my lights. So I go down to the local feed store around the corner from my house. And I said, hey, fellas, I got a problem. I tell him the problem. He says, I got the solution. And he comes back and he hands me a plastic owl. I said, bro, that's not what I need. I need like, you know, squirrel killer. I need like squirrel bombs. I need some legal way to eradicate this nuisance. He said, trust me. I'm like, seriously? So I take this plastic owl to my house. And I'm be honest with you, I feel pretty stupid. <laughs> Nobody's looking. I get out with my little toy owl. I climb back up my ladder. I put the owl in the tree, you know, tape up all the bare wires that, you know, I hadn't seen a squirrel. Those suckers are apparently ultra terrified of out. Who knew? Man. So I just thought, I thought of all the other plastic things I could put in my trees that would probably freak them out. If they're scared of that dumb thing, we could ramp this thing up. But anyway, if you have squirrel problems where they're eating your lights, you get you a plastic owl, you will not see a squirrel. That was the end of they. they now, my neighbor, he had doubled the squirrels suddenly. I don't know what happened. I was like, Lord, I'm trying to love my neighbor here, but I, gotta, I can't be having these squirrels eating my lights. But we all have expectations about Christmas. And here's the thing about these expectations, regardless of whether at Christmas time or any time in our life, that it makes us feel uncomfortable to not be what people expect us to be. We, we want to live up to those expectations. We want those expectations to, to be fulfilled. And so it's a problem, especially in our culture today. I'm going to ask you a couple questions. And I want you to just listen and think as I ask them. The first question is, are you highly conscious and hypercritical of your mistakes. Number two, do you tend to ruminate over why things didn't turn out as planned? Number three, are you defensive towards criticism and do you fear failure? Number four, are you the harshest critic of yourself? Now, some of you have noticed these questions are on the back of your listening guide, so you can talk about them in small group today. But these questions will help you begin to uh, see and bring this area in our lives into the light. This this thing inside of all of us that wants to live up to expectations that we, we either have for ourselves or we have for other people. And when they're not met, 
It's a problem. And this is why we're so sensitive about things. This is why we tend to get anxious in a situation that might give other people the impression that we're not perfect. See, this is the truth. Let's just be honest. This is the reason why some of you in this room don't have other people over to your house. You don't want people to see you in an imperfect light. As if any of the people coming over to your house are perfect. So you can come to my house and sit in the living room and you might have to shove some laundry to the side to sit down, but that's just part of it. I'm, that's who we are. That's life. But, but what's the alternative? See, I know the, the, the tension. The tension in the room is the alternative. Well, now, if, you know, if, if I don't strive for, you know, excellence, maybe that's the way we, we try to cloak it. Makes it sound good. If I don't strive for excellence then what's the alternative? Are you suggesting that I strive for average? Is that the goal? Am I encouraging us in the room to be slackers? No. But I'm, I'm wondering, what are we trying to accomplish? What, what is accomplished when, when the expectations are met? And don't you see what it's doing to you? What do you accomplish? You work so hard to make things just right, perfect, good, and then when it falls short, or even if you succeed in it, then what? Then you're just a slave to it because guess what? It's over and then there's another thing. You just go from Christmas to the next holiday. See, every year it keeps coming back. And then every year there's just the pressure to outdo the year before. And it just goes on and on and on and on, doesn't it? Yeah. What's the, what's the goal? What, what should be the goal? Not to, not to strive to be perfect in every way. I don't think that's a healthy goal. In fact, I'm going to show you today that's a very unhealthy goal. But the, it's also not to just try to do the least possible to get by. That's not the goal. That's an unhealthy goal. We should redefine the goal. The, the goal should be to know God and to be used by Him. How about that? There's the goal. My goal in life is to know God and to be used by Him. You have to really be careful about your, the way you define your goal because the words you use can really trip you up. But I think that's a good way to, to think about it without getting yourself in a jam. To, be, to know God and to be used by Him. So here's what I want us to think about. You can get your listening guide out. First of all, perfectionism is anti-grace. It's anti-grace. That's what it is. You know, last week we talked about, Pastor Brian talked about how the Bible teaches that 
as Christians, we're to be agents of grace. That God's plan is for His people to be the dispensers of grace. Right? Well, here's the thing. We can't do that. We can't dispense grace when we're wrapped up in trying to make everything perfect. Trying to meet the expectations that we have on other people or other people have on us or God has on us or whoever's expectations they are. They, they consume us and then we... We find out that it's anti-grace. Now let's consider a couple passages of Scripture that are familiar. First of all, in Romans 5, the Bible says God demonstrates His own love towards us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So in the midst of our failure, I just want you to see this. Strivers, perfectionists, achievers. See, I know a lot about this. This is a big challenge in my life. I could write a book about this topic. In the midst of our failure, there is where God saves us. But now what about the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5? As Jesus pulled, starts pulling chapter 5 to a close, He says, Therefore, after all these things I've said, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Wait a minute, what now? Huh? What's going on there? How, uh, here, here's the most grace-filled sermon that's ever been preached. Here's Jesus comes on the scene in his first sermon. And, and he's immediately saying, well, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the, the, the broken. Blessed are the meek. Right? He he's, comes on the scene and, and, and he's, he's saying, I've come for the weak and the broken and the marginalized, the failures. So then how can he say, therefore, you shall be perfect just as your father is perfect? Is he calling us to some kind of a life of perfection? Is that what's going on here? Is he saying, hey, the, the Christian life is a life of striving? To please others, to live up to their expectation, or to, to achieve all you can, or whatever the case may be? Is that what he's calling us to? And the answer to that is no. That is not what's going on. See, here's what he's saying. Jesus is calling our attention to the fact that perfection is not found in you. It is found in the one who found you. That's what Jesus is talking about. See, the, he didn't. Now, if Jesus would have just said, be perfect, we'd have a problem. But he didn't say that. He said, be perfect in a very specific way, didn't he? The way my father's perfect. That's what he said. See, the only way you're ever going to find perfection is through his perfection, not our perfection. You got that? That's the only way. Look at what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. You see that? It's not of us. So if we're striving to live up to this expectation, this pressure, then my question is, well, why? Why are we doing that? What's driving that? What are we expecting to accomplish or gain? 
And here's one thing I can tell you about every single one of us, every human being. Everything we do, we do for a reason. Nobody does anything for nothing. We all do everything for something. So if, if, if when we get caught in this wheel, this performance wheel, we're doing it for a reason. So don't act like you don't know what the reason is because you do. You know. You're trying to live up to something and you know why. Well, let me help us. See, the reason that we strive for perfection, you know, we all have our own nuances, but but let me just make it simple. The, The reason we strive for perfection is to win. We wouldn't do it if we didn't think we could win. And what do you do when you think you can win? See, at my house, we love to play board games, card games, any kind of games. And 99% of the time, that goes well. But there is 1% of the time where it does not go well. And, and it's, it's hard because we're a competitive group of people. And most of the people in my family are cheaters. <laughs> Pray for them. I mean, I'm trying to help them with that, but they got problems. But let me tell you something about keeping score. We want to keep score when we can win. But you know what? When the game's out of hand and there's nowhere we... You can always tell who's losing big time. Because you know what? They get up and go in the kitchen. They're wandering around. Right? They don't care because they know they can't win. It tortures you to sit there and play out the game when you can't win. Right? So why do we... So guess what? If you, you're keeping score, I'm keeping score. You know why we're keeping score? Because we're trying to win and we think we can. Because if we didn't think we could, we wouldn't be keeping score. See... Behind all of our striving and scorekeeping is this question. Am I okay? That's what we want to answer. You see, we're, if, 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 we can, if we can get everything perfect, if we can make everything right, we can, then, it'll, then it makes me okay. You know, if you can cook the perfect meal, then you're, you're, you're okay as a mom. If you can decorate the tree and get the squirrels out, you're okay as a dad. If you can buy the perfect gift, you're okay as a, as a, a person. If you can do this, if you can do that, if you can, if you can live in a certain way, clean your life up, make a certain amount of money, save a certain amount of money, do certain things, all these, whatever the case may be. It's all because something's wrong. See, I, I, me and you, we want people to think we're okay. That's what we want. And we think we can get there, so we're keeping score. We're, we're keeping score on ourselves. We're keeping score on each other. We're, we're all, we're scorekeeping. We got cards. You came in this morning. You got a card in your pocket. You don't think anybody knows that, but you do. But we all do. And you got stuff wrote on it. Some of you are keeping score of the way other people dress or what other people drive or what this or that or whatever the case may be. And we obsess about what other people think or we obsess about what other people do because we're keeping score. And every time, listen, every time something bad happens, 
some of you in the room, every time something bad happens, the first thing that you think is that God's punishing you. You know why? You think God's keeping score. That's why you think that. And you hate that you think it, but you do anyway. And you've heard me talk about it hundreds of times, and you still do it. Because what you think about when you think about God is not who He really is, but you think about a scorekeeping God. And so when, things, when something bad happens to you, your default is God's punishing me. God's keeping score. And so when we keep score, we're going to fall into some of these categories. This isn't exhaustive, but it's pretty comprehensive. I would say it, it encompasses just about everybody. See, when it comes to scorekeepers, you got three classifications of people. The first classification of people are the tired people. Scorekeeping just wears you out. I mean, it's tiresome. And, and the tired people, they're tired because they're, they've been asking the, the question, well, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? See, because about the time I feel like things are going to be okay. See, they're tired because they're, you're constantly trying to make a broken world unbroken in your mind, in your way. You're, you're constantly trying to, to put a, a square peg in a round hole. Something happens and it tilts the scorecard to the negative and man you're just worn out reminds you you see every time you suffer a setback every time you don't win what what's your what's your end game next time i'm gonna try harder so you're just exhausted usually the tired crew is the crew newest to the scorekeeping game the veteran scorekeepers they fall into the second category. That's the angry. Because after you've been tired for a while, you eventually morph into angry. And instead of asking the question, what's wrong with me? You start asking the question, well, what's wrong with God? I mean, this just isn't working out. No matter how much effort I put in, no matter how hard I try, I mean, all I am is tired. I can't make things right. All these things are outside of my control and they keep sort of tilting towards the negative. They, they keep going the wrong way and I go and I go and I go and it just doesn't work. And now I'm frustrated. Now I'm mad. You get angry, see, when you sense there's injustice. Injustice makes us angry. So you got the tired, the angry, and the third group is the insecure. Now normally... The way the insecure group comes, you know, the way they look on the surface, it looks like pride. But it's really insecurity. It is pride, but what's underneath it is insecurity. That's the issue. And see, they're asking the question, well, what's wrong with everybody else? It sounds prideful, but it's insecurity. See, some people are keeping score on other people. Because of how insecure they are about themselves. See, they're, they're, they're worried about themselves. So they're, they're watching what everybody else is doing to make sure they measure up. They're posting all the right things. They're trying to present all the right things because they don't want to get, you know, fall behind other people. And so they're, they're... And when you get into that cycle, boy, then you inevitably get in this terrible place of insecurity where you start 
jumping on the bandwagon when people fail, see, because they're, they're, they're no longer threatening you. Even sometimes in your heart, you start rooting against, which is absolutely horrible. And see, insecure people, they find confidence in their scorecard because they're insecure. That's all they got. They don't want anything to mess that up. They're very protective of that score. They work very hard to bend all their rules are bent around enhancing their score. You know the thing about insecure Christians? Whatever their weakness is, whatever their sin is, it's always a very minor infraction to God. And other people's problems are the big deal. Insecure people have a very sophisticated uh, list of sins and their importance. And here's the thing. Whether you're tired or angry or insecure, here's what you need to understand. Everybody who keeps a scorecard loses. Everybody. Because it's anti-grace. And here's the secret about grace. I had to wait until four weeks in to tell you this, but this is the secret about grace. Years ago, I was in my study, and you know how much I love Charles Spurgeon. And Charles Spurgeon said, you know what? You can't teach grace. You can't teach it. There's no combination of words that will be sufficient. You can't diagram grace and, and, and get somebody to full understanding of it. No. What he says is there's only one way to understand grace. There's only one way. You can't teach it. You can't. Yeah, I can't teach you about grace. That's why I didn't tell you that in the first week or else you all say, well, what are we doing? I knew it, but just wait until the end to let you know. You can't teach what grace is. There's one way to understand grace. You know what that is? Experience it. That's so true. That's the only way. It's the only way. See, it's, you know, in a strange kind of way, it's sort of like one of the expectations of my house for Christmas is food, but not just food, gumbo. That's a big deal at my house. It's a big deal. And every Christmas we have gumbo, seafood gumbo. I mean, the, the man, the real deal. And so for years, it was always my mother-in-law being in the kitchen, you know, the day before working on the roux and all this kind of stuff. And now Lisa's in there, you know, all these hours of preparation and hundreds of dollars worth of seafood and all this kind of stuff. It's all. But let me tell you something about gumbo. I, I, what made me think about I was thinking about grace, and I thought about this time that I was in Brazil, and I was, we were having a conversation, and they came up, and they said, what is gumbo? And I went, I have no idea. I got nothing. And they're like, well, don't you, isn't that what you eat every Christmas? I go, yeah. And didn't you just say that's your favorite fruit? I go, yeah. Well, they go, well, what is it? I'm like, I ain't got a clue. I don't know. I mean, how do you explain gumbo? You can't. There's only one way to know what it is. You got to eat it. That's the only way. I mean, what are you going to, what do you say? Well, it's like a soup, 
but it has no it's not like a soup it's not it's different there's no definition that's gonna you got if you don't eat it then you you don't know that's how grace is now when you read the bible there's lots of references and uh, about grace in the new testament right it's constantly something about grace it's mentioned all over the place but all the references to grace are not explanations of grace. Have you noticed that? They're not explanations of grace. They're references to grace, not explanations of grace. Well, pastor, are you trying to tell us that the Bible doesn't teach us what grace is? Well, no. Of course I'm not. But how does the Bible teach us what grace is? That's the question. How? Not with definitions. We've given you definitions every week. That's not going to do it. It's insufficient. The Bible teaches us what grace is through stories, through lives. What we do in the Bible if to learn what grace is, is we see grace activated in the lives of people in Scripture. That's the way we find out what grace is. So see, if, if I was talking to somebody who had never been to church, never read the Bible, didn't know anything about God, and they were never heard of Christianity, and they were like, what is grace? I wouldn't give them a definition. I'd read them Luke chapter 23 and the story of the thief on the cross. That's what I'd do. Or John chapter 4, Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Right? Or what about John chapter 8 when... The Pharisees bring the woman caught in adultery, in the very act of adultery to Jesus. See, that, if you want to know what grace is, you got to tell a story. That's how you know what it is. Because they're lives. They're real people that live real lives. That, that here's the thing. Had real scorecards. Lived in a society that was keeping score. Encountered people that were keeping score. There's scorecards all over all of those stories. Until grace showed up. And that's what changed everything. So we're going to talk about Moses for a minute. And we're going to get to Deuteronomy in a second. I'm going to put these other scriptures up on the screen so you can just hang with me. Now, you know who Moses is. I'm just going to suffice it to say, we don't have time for a big long. I'm just going to, you know, he he's he's the great leader of the Old Testament. He's the person God chose to free his people from captivity. Of all the people on earth that he could have chosen, he chose Moses. And we know there was a lot of question marks about that decision, even especially with Moses. Cuz he didn't appear to be the person you would choose, but God chose him, right? He was a great leader that God used to do great things. So in Numbers chapter 20, in the heat of leading these ornery, rebellious, ungrateful people through the wilderness, worn down and battled Moses, he's tired and he, man, he has just been through the ringer. And yet again, God calls him for the second time to bring forth rock out of uh, water out of a rock. Except for this time, instead of striking the rock that he did the first time, God says, speak to the rock. 
So in Numbers chapter 20, verse 11, Then Moses lifted his hand, and he struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came out abundantly. And the congregation and their animals drank. Is that, am I the only person that's astonished by that? Let's just back up for a second and just revisit what just happened. Now get your scorecards out. Moses just disobeyed God and God did it anyway. God brought water anyway. God told Moses to speak to the rock. Moses smacked the rock not once but twice. He called the people rebels. He was aggravated. He was tired. He was mad. He was keeping score. So he smacked the rock. And God, eh, no water came forth. Grace poured out of that rock. Everybody drank. And here's the thing. All the people didn't know anything different. You know what the people thought? There's Moses, our great hero. Every time he, he, does, he does whatever God tells him to do. They thought, wow, it was this moment where we need to have a Moses parade. Everybody was wearing their Moses t-shirts. They were like going, we love Moses. He's amazing. They didn't know what had happened. Grace just poured out. Moses looks like the hero. Hey, scorekeepers, in this moment, God rewarded disobedience. It's what happened. Now, it would have been easy for God to say, nope. No water comes out. Now think about how, because some of you are thinking, well, now hold on a second. I mean, you know, there's millions of people and they're dying of thirst and God's going to take care of them. But just time out, Charlie. Let's just think about this for a second. How easy would it have been for God to just, he strikes the rock, nothing. Now everybody knows, uh uh-oh, Houston, we got a problem. So then Moses retreats. And him and Aaron go back, and he goes back in the tent, and he meets with God, and then he comes back out, and he's like, okay, I'm sorry. Uh, And he speaks to the rock, and water comes out. He could have done that in 10 minutes. 10 more minutes of thirstiness wouldn't have killed anybody. God didn't do that. He let water just pour out of the rock. Now, judging by some of y'all's faces, there's a contingency of you in here that hate that. You're mad right now. You don't like it. Because I just got up on your scorecard. Well. What in the world? Well, why would God do such a thing? Well, He did it. Grace. Now, you know the story. Don't let your mind get it. Don't let your mind... You know, what, what are you sitting there thinking like... Pastor Tony didn't read the whole chapter. Hmm? I told you I'm an expert on this topic. This is my battle. The next verse says, 
well, the top's kind of messed up. But anyway, then it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, not to everybody. And he said, Because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given you. Some of you are like, yes, he got it. You like it. Cannot go in. Take that. So it appears that God drops the proverbial hammer on Moses. Now I want you to think about Moses in this moment. Okay? I want you to... Be, you, you put yourself in his shoes for a moment. Suddenly at the, the end of the day, you're now all of a sudden losing. Or you've lost. See, you've worked so hard. You've done so good. You've accomplished so much. And then... It's in this moment when life seems so unfair. It's so unfair. The punishment doesn't seem to match the crime. What about all the credit that I built up? What about all the grace that I should have stored up here? What about all that? God seems so unfair. When we're blindsided by pain. Huh. Yeah, see, now I'm getting in your business, see? Because now we, we know a little bit about this, don't we? A lot of us in the room, we, we know what it's like to be blindsided by pain. All of a sudden, a tsunami of circumstances. And we're just baffled and bewildered and what do we do with our scorecard now see you can't keep score when things don't add up you know what I know about pain when I'm in a lot of pain it doesn't add up somehow I can never now I, I'm pretty good at computing your pain but I can't ever seem to balance the equation of my own pain never I don't think you can either do you quit? do you give up? do you walk away? do you say well I'm just done with this? do you raise your fist up at God and say I'm done with you? Where's the justice in this, God? You know, couldn't I, why couldn't I say goodbye to my loved one? Why couldn't, why couldn't I? If, I've, if I would have known that, that this was my last Christmas or that was my last Christmas, if I would have known that this diagnosis was going to happen, if I, I would have known that this relationship was going to fracture, if I would have known... It's just not right. Remember two weeks ago I told you that in Christ weakness is never wasted. You remember that? It's a good principle to know. It's never wasted in Christ. So look here. Grace is most often experienced when life doesn't make sense. You can't experience grace. This is why everyone with a scorecard loses. 
That's why it's anti-grace. The only way to experience grace is you got to get into a position where life doesn't make sense, where things don't add up, where you can't balance it out. You can't reconcile it. That's the only way to experience it. Remember what Jesus said? My grace is sufficient in your weakness. My strength is made perfect for you. Yeah? It's experienced when life doesn't make sense. And do you know why that is? Because grace obliterates our scorecards. Obliterates. Now watch this in Deuteronomy 34. I love Moses. I think I'm so passionate about Moses because I see a lot of... You know, I, 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 I can resonate with Moses. I feel like me and Moses are the same on the Enneagram. I feel like we got the same personality. I feel like there's so many times when I'm low and down, I want to hear from Moses. I want to go, what did Moses do? I'm not saying y'all are like the Israelites, but if the shoe fits, Deuteronomy 34. Verse 1, then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is across from Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead as far as Dan, all of Naphtali and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the south and the plain of the valley of Jericho, the city of the palm trees as far as Zoar. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land in which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have caused you to see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. Mm. God takes Moses up on this mountain. If we had two more hours, I could explain to you the hundred amazing things that happened between Exodus 20 and this, but I don't. Takes him up on a mountain and gives him a panoramic view. If you, if you knew your, your, your map, you would know that this is a 360-degree view counterclockwise. Very specific and methodical and thought out by God. It's the perfect vantage point to see. God took him to the one place. He orchestrated all of these events because this wasn't where Moses was trying to go. All you got to do is read the very next thing that happened after Exodus 20. And you'll find out why they ended up going this way and being across from Jericho and on and on and on. So, but God did all of that just for this. Does that, it seems kind of cruel, doesn't it? I mean, why, why are you going to take me up here and show me all the things I'm not going to get to see? I'm not going to experience. I'm not going to do like, what are you doing? It seems kind of mean, but no. This is all part of God's plan. This is where this is this is Moses experiencing the grace of God, the sufficiency of God's grace in this incredible act of tender mercy. God is telling Moses, listen, everything you invested your life in, you look over here, look at look at over there, look at that. All of the struggles you've been through, all the years that you've given to leading these ornery people across the, the, the desert, all of the things, all of the sacrifices, everything, all of it, it wasn't for nothing. They're going to get there. 
the people that you have loved and sacrificed for, they're going to flourish there. You didn't do this for nothing. This is for something uh, that I'm going to, I'm going to fulfill the promise that I made to your ancestors. He's encouraging Moses. He's saying, listen, the people that you loved. Hold on. I mean, we don't have time, but just look, maybe there's a mom or a dad here. And as soon as you start thinking about your grown kids, you feel tension and disappointment and, and frustration. You feel like you feel like you failed as a parent. You feel like you've you 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 your scorecard is killing you. And what if on your deathbed? God gave you a vision. He said, listen, they're going to be okay. They're going to do great. They're going to flourish. You're going to die, and you're not going to see it, but they're going to, they're going to cross over. Well, see? You see how amazing that makes you feel right now? That's what this moment is for Moses. So look at what happens. In this story, God obliterates Moses' scorecard with grace. See, Moses has a scorecard, and God just obliterated it. Now, here's how he did it. He did it with water, first of all, because Moses was mad at the people. He called them rebels. You know what a rebel is? You know what the definition of a rebel is? A rebel is a person who refuses to obey authority. Isn't it interesting? He's mad because they don't obey authority. And then in his anger, he's like, you don't, no, 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 no. And then he turns around and he rebels against God. Mm. And Moses just wadded up that scorecard and put it in his pocket. See, after God said, hey, you didn't hallow me in front of the people. You didn't do what I told you to do. You think Moses was... He wasn't saying nothing. His scorecard was obliterated. Suddenly he was remembering, oh yeah, I'm the murderer who is on the run in exile. When you came to me in a burning bush. That's right, yeah. But not only does God obliterate Moses' scorecard with grace, here's what he does. God obliterates Moses' idea of God's scorecard with grace, which is so beautiful. He obliterates the idea that Moses has about God. He's correcting what Moses thinks about when he thinks about God. Look at verses 5 and 6 in Deuteronomy 34. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, here's what the Bible says, died there in the land of Moab, where he was on the mountain with the panoramic view, where he just saw that, you know what, his kids are going to be okay, that it's not a failure. That Listen, hey, here's the deal. You, you, you weren't a perfect parent. There's a lot of things you did wrong. And God shows you on your deathbed, but, but, but my grace is going to be sufficient. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you that they're going to be okay, not because of them, but because of me. God said, Moses, the people are going to make it in, not because of them, but because of me. They're not going to go in the promised land because they deserve it. They're not going to go in the promised land because they, they earned it, because they did a good job. Any more than water came out of that rock because you earned it. 
They're going in the promised land because I'm taking them in the promised land. Get rid of the scorecard, bro. And then the next verse says Moses dies there. And verse 6 says, and capital H, he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Beor. But no one knows his grave to this day. Look here. I've done a lot of funerals. Got to do a funeral tomorrow. You ever been to a funeral that God did the funeral? Because I haven't. The only person God ever did a funeral for was Moses. The only time God ever dug a hole and buried somebody or did whatever he did was with Moses. That never happened before. Moses is, think about this. Moses dies in the arms of God. I mean, just stop for a second. Don't, some of you have read this before and you're like, poor Moses all alone died. Are you ignorant? He's with God. Like they're having this one-on-one moment together. You couldn't die in a better way than that. That's the ultimate way to die right there. God does your funeral. I mean, man. Did Moses fail? Of course he did. He was keeping score on the people. And he was convinced that God was keeping score on him. See, all of us have a tendency to to be scorekeepers. But thanks be to God, God doesn't keep score on us. So here's Moses' tombstone, the epitaph in verse 10. Deuteronomy 34, verse 10. Then since then, so here's the big failure. Here's the guy that so many people, if I ever hear another sermon, another False teachers stand up and say, that's the punishment of Moses. No, 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 no. Like it's just like, oh, look. Here's the tombstone. What does it say? But since then, there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face in all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt before Pharaoh, before all his servants, in all the land. Notice how God's being very specific. And by all that mighty power and all that great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all of Israel. Like, I don't know about you. Do you know what that says? You know what the tombstone of Moses would say? You know what the story of Moses, if you want to sum up Moses' life, here it is. Moses knew God and was used by Him. That's what that says. Moses experienced grace right here. So that we can experience grace. Now listen. You got a lot of recalculating to do. Some of you, 
you live every day in bondage to what's your score. You're so, you're so worried about what other people think about you. You're so worried about the side other people see of you. The very thing that you try so hard to hide your weakness is the reason you don't experience grace. Is the very thing you should be embracing. Some of you, you're obsessed with what other people around you are doing. You constantly are policing and patrolling their behavior, their actions, their words. And there's no grace there. Now, what you, what you feel right now is you feel like I'm telling you, because I can't read your mind, but God can, and then he tells me what you just thought. And what you just thought was, you thought, so I'm just supposed to let everybody do whatever they want to do? That's what you thought. No, that's not what I said. The problem is not that you are trying to be sure that the people around you honor God or do the right thing or whatever. The problem is is that there's never anything wrong with you. The way it's supposed to work is that when the people around me don't do what they ought to do in the eyes of God, what, what grace has taught me to do is to come beside them because I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a needy person too and for us to walk together through it. Nobody needs somebody to point out everything that's wrong. We already know that. We need somebody to walk with us. We need somebody to say, put the scorecard down and say, I, re I realize that you're struggling here. And I struggle here. Maybe I don't struggle here, but I struggle other areas. And I would have never made it through the areas that I struggle on my own, but somebody came beside me, so I'd like to come beside you and walk with you. Yeah. And then lastly, there's some of you in here. And as much as it pains me to say this, you came to church this morning just like you come to church every Sunday. Not because it was what you really, really, really wanted to do. But because you serve a God with a scorekeeping mentality and so you do the things that you think he expects you to do because you don't want to suffer the consequences otherwise it's anti-grace
It's anti-gospel. So I do think there is one way that I've found to define grace. But you can only give this definition after we've had a conversation like this. So I want to leave you with this. Grace is the look on God's face when we fail. That's what grace is. May it be that we get the privilege and the honor of being able to experience what it's like to fail. And to look into the face of our Heavenly Father and see grace.